Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's SASH session with Jen Cooper, one of our executive committee members. She will present on the very first FIFA Under-19 Women's World Championships. Founded in 1993, SASH works to facilitate and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media with our Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society or renew your membership, you can do that through the Join SASH tab on our website. Jen Cooper fell in love with the beautiful game, watching Thomas Ravelli in goal for Sweden during the 1994 World Cup. She's been following the women's game closely since the 1996 Olympics, and over the years developed a reputation as the go-to Woso historian for American soccer. She launched the first weekly American women's soccer podcast hosted by women in 2014 and began publishing an NWSL almanac in 2016. She's been the primary statistician researcher for NWSL broadcasts since 2017. She served as a researcher for the 2018 World Cup, the 2019 Women's World Cup, 2021 Olympics, and now the 2022 CONCACAF W Championship. One quick editorial note, Jen is a goalkeeper, I'm a goalkeeper. Uh, so why are there so many goalkeepers doing soccer history? Uh, I think we have a disproportionate uh, amount. Uh, perhaps it's because we're always watching the action, much of it from afar, and we're kind of narrating the story to stay concentrated. Anyway, enough on that rant. I am off to Wembley to go watch uh, the US women play England. Uh, so over to you, Jen. Enjoy the session. Thank you for that. Love that intro. All right. So a look back at the first ever youth championship organized by FIFA for women. Um, it was 20 years ago this, this past summer, held in Canada. Um, significant in, in, in so many ways. And I think uh, when I think back about this tournament, it's it's significant to me because of how at that time my involvement in women's soccer was just escalating. But it also points to a really specific time for women's soccer in terms of American soccer, North American soccer, and, and obviously FIFA. FIFA had been doing um, a youth tournament for men since the 70s. Uh, you know, it, it eventually evolved to have two different youth tournaments for men. Um, as many of you probably remember, you know, there was not a Women's World Cup till 91. There was not a U.S. Women's National Team until 1985. Uh, the first Olympic tournament for, for women was, was 96. You had a lot of new events for women happening in, in fairly rapid succession. And then when we think back about, um, you know, just the watershed moment that 1999 was, followed very quickly by, of course, uh, the Olympics, which got so much coverage because of 99. You know, FIFA 
was ready to go ahead and add a women's youth tournament. So they decided um, sometime in 2000, I couldn't, I couldn't track down a, like an exact meeting uh, where they decided to add this. It was announced um, in early 2001 that Canada would, would be hosting it and that the first tournament would be, would be U19. And also at, at the same time period, um, especially in the USA, obviously. So you had the WSA founded in 2000, first season in 2001. Also at this era for NCAA soccer, the, the number of teams every year, there were more and more division one teams. Um, the decade from like 92 to 2002, just tremendous growth. Uh, in the women's game for soccer, not just because of Title IX, um, but also because of the growth of the number of women attending colleges. Um, and so, of course, that's an, that's a very easy sport to add if you need to adjust the, the number of your sports to uh, the population of your students, right? Most people usually already have a field that can be used, uh, you know, for soccer. So when we put this this event in terms of the time period, not just FIFA, not just NCAA, NCAA but also just the women's game. Um, you know, keep in mind, I, I often forget this and I have to remind myself, the WSA was the first ever fully professional women's soccer league in the world. Um, even when it happened at the time, I was surprised. I assumed that uh, European you know, leagues were fully professional and, and they weren't, you know, at best they were, they were semi-pro at the time. So all of this is happening within the same couple of years. And then of course that era for national team soccer, you've got UEFA, which at the time was the only confederation that was running any kind of youth championship. Um, they had started their their U19 championship in the late 90s. It had been U18 briefly before that. Um, so they already had a pretty well-developed system for the youth, the youth national teams. On the U.S. side, um, it was interesting to learn reading about this that U.S. attributes having a U18 team to Tony DeChico, uh, that he... Uh, it, in his term as U.S. national team coach, they already had a U21 team, but he said, hey, we need to go even younger. We need to be looking at that pipeline, developing, you know, more youth. Uh, so when FIFA made the announcement that there was going to be a U19 tournament, the U.S. already had a pipeline set up for that. And then, of course, FIFA says, all right, it's going to be hosted by Canada. It's going to be all in Western Canada. Um, I'm not sure if anybody else bid, could not find that document, um, but three venues all close together, which is you know, a pretty wise move. Now, one of the three ven venues in Edmonton, the Commonwealth Stadium, which you know was used in the 2015 Women's World Cup, people was really nervous about using a stadium so large. There had been a men's Canadian soccer tournament just a few years before that had been held there and had done so poorly attendance wise that it really affected uh, Canada soccer's finances, but they went with it. The, the other two venues are like 5,000 seaters tops, right? So of course, Canada, the host country was gonna play all of its games at Edmonton. And I'm just gonna go over the top four teams that don't wanna rehash you know, every little bit of the tournament. But 
for Canada, that team that kind of, you know, won the hearts of, of the nation, let's say, I mean, this was very similar, I think, to what was what had happened in the U.S. just a few years before. They had wisely organized a coast-to-coast -coast tour before the tournament. Um, so all the major cities were seeing the U19 team play. Uh, There's so many big stars for Canada that came out of this squad, of course, you know, none as big as Christine Sinclair, and, and I'll talk about her more later, but uh, they had huge crowds in Edmonton for all of Canada's games, and the team made it all the way to the final. Um, so when Canada did it, its centennial celebrations a few years back, one of the top five moments in Canadian women's soccer history was, was this event and this team. And then, of course, their nemesis, their eternal nemesis, uh, the team that beat them in the final, uh, the U.S. U19 team. Um, you may recognize a few faces there. Some of them may be, may be too young to, to recognize at the time. Uh, but again, because of that U18 system that Tony DeChico had set up, because of um, you know the strength of women's college soccer in the U.S., uh, they put together a really strong team. You've got you've got players on this team that went on to be part of World Cup winning teams, Olympic winning teams like Lori Kolupny, Lindsay Tarpley, Ashlyn Harris, Heather O'Reilly, Rachel Bueller, Leslie Osborne. You know, so so much talent in this team, and it's 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 funny to to remember. I mean, at least when I was looking at all the the details, that Ashlyn Harris as the goalkeeper for this team, she was only 16 as the starting keeper in the final. Uh, where you know, I think more now with the the youth tournaments, you're seeing the players really at the top end, uh, you know, of of the age bracket, and then the two. The two semifinalists that the U.S. and Canada beat to get into the final, Germany, who's always performed really well at the senior level, of course, with the advent of the youth uh, tournaments, they've always been really strong because they had they already had a long history of having youth national teams. And then Brazil, I would say this is the the beginning of their their golden generation, which not 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 to diss them and, and apologies if anybody is is brazilian but it's really their silver generation in terms of this team was runner-up at back-to-back -back olympics and the 2007 women's world cup or rather a lot of these players from this team um most significantly marta the number 10 on the front row this was her first international tournament uh she would earn her first cap senior cap for Brazil uh, the following spring. And you also have Christiane, who just retired after the Olympics last year, um, is still the all-time leading scorer in, in the Olympics. So, so much talent on these very young squads. Um, watching some of these highlights recently, I had to remind myself, you know, that the way the announcers are talking about them, it's like, I couldn't take it for granted that, oh, of course it's Marta. It's like, no, this is the first time um, people are seeing these players worldwide. And then some of the coaches for these these teams um, are coaches that we know the names pretty well now, might not have been big names then. Um, for Sylvia Nide, she was a big name player uh, for Germany, part of their um, team that won in uh, 2003. Same for, for Tina Toyna, part of the, that, that coaching staff. This was really, you know, Nide's 
first coaching gig. Mo Marley had been a, you know, longtime player on, on England's national team. Um, and sh this was her first big coaching gig and she's been coaching ever since, whether it's been in, uh, you know, women's club in England, or more recently, she's been back with the England national team. And then I really want to point out Tracy Leone, whose main name Tracy Bates, uh, she was part of that 1991 Women's World Cup team. So she was one of the very first to win a World Cup as a player and win a World Cup as a coach. And I got to give a shout out to the referees, um, all female crew, not the first time it was an all female crew for a women's um, world championship that was 99. Uh, but for many of the referees, it was their first time to work a world championship. Obvious exception being, of course, Carrie Seitz, who, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only person, male or female, to referee at four World Cups and four Olympics. And of course, she's now at, at FIFA running the referee side of things. So the tournament, just just over two weeks, end of the summer 2002, you know, our, our basic setup of three groups of four teams with eight teams advancing, uh, and, and I should say 26 games, not 26 teams. Not really surprised at seeing, um, you know, the names of the teams that advanced and not really a surprise either when you look at, look at the goals for goals against, you know, for, for USA, 15-4, only one against. You, you definitely have, you know, with a new tournament like this and different confederations having different level of development, you've got um, a, a pretty broad range of, of talent. And so I have a few clips. Um, one of them has sound. I'm sad that the other two don't, but just to give a little sense of how big uh, these crowds were at the Edmonton Stadium, right? Obviously, the other two were pretty small venues, but the Edmonton Stadium averaged over 20,000 per game. Um, Set Blatter actually called it the miracle of Canada. Um, so here is one of uh, Sinclair's first goals. Well, they must have watched a few of those games on television because they know what they're up against and they've prepared for it very well. They're up in the back. Here comes across. Christine Sinclair has opened the scoring. Well, you mentioned that he's been the player that hasn't been getting as much media attention as Lang. And there's the reason why she is Canada's best player and one of the top scorers in the tournament, the top scorer for Canada. She can finish from anywhere. We've seen her finish from headers, and that's just a beautiful finish. She scored on a header in the second half against Nigeria, and what a beautiful goal right there. And you have to give Moscato credit. She puts the ball in beautifully in the perfect spot. Sinclair waiting. You know they practice this, and that's just a clinical, beautiful finish. Of course, Sinclair went on to win the Golden Boot. She had 10 goals. It's still a tournament record for for number of goals in a single tournament. Here's a goal from Marta in the semifinal. It went down to Canada versus Brazil in the semifinal. Um, they tied 1-1 in regulation, no goals in extra time. And keep in mind that this was the very tail end of the golden goal era. Um, so this game actually went all the way to penalties. This video, it doesn't have sound um, and it doesn't make the Canadian keeper look very good. But there's there's so many good angles of the moves that Marta had. At this point, she was only 16 years old. 
I love the three against one that she seems to have no problem with whatsoever. And then here is the golden goal that won the, the final for the US. There were nearly 48,000 fans at Edmonton Stadium, um, scoreless, you know, at the end of regulation, they were 19 minutes into 30 minutes of extra time, almost 19 minutes. Um, and here is the goal. I wish I had the goal call because it's it's classic and I'll send you guys some YouTube links later so you can can hear it. Uh, the, the announcer says, the skipper has won it. The skipper has won it. It's the captain, Lindsay Tarpley. So in front of about 47,000 Canadian fans and maybe 500 US fans, and there's Tracy Bates, the coach. So it was amazing final. I, I remember watching it live. It was actually on Fox Sports World, as was the U.S. semifinal. Um, so many great names coming out of this tournament. Here's a look at their all-star team. Like I mentioned, Christine Sinclair, Heather O'Reilly, Marta, um, Miho Fukumoto, the keeper for Japan uh, on, on the top of the list. She was the, the starting keeper for Japan in both the 2011 and 2015 Women's World Cup. And I know I've said these names a lot, but just a reminder. So Christine Sinclair won the golden boot and the golden ball, set that tournament record that still stands, you know, and since then, Olympic gold medalist, two-time bronze medalist, world record 190 goals. She's now second all-time in international appearances. Only Christine Lilly has more. And she's scored in five World Cups, just like Marta who won the silver ball that tournament. And since then, six time FIFA player of the year, two time Olympic silver medalist. She was with Brazil when they were runner ups to Germany in 2007 at the World Cup. And she is still the all time leading scorer in women's World Cup history. Lots of names here. I didn't wanna make a blur for everybody, but just give you some of the names from this very first tournament. So it's all Americans on the left side. Um, many of whom went on to become World Cup champions. The top two on the right side, English players, Alex Scott, Farrah Williams, who was still England's all-time caps leader. Anya Mittag, who was the leading scorer at the 2016 Olympic tournament when Germany won. Laura George, who I think, I believe she's secretary general now for the French Federation. Um, Aaron McLeod, who has still been playing um, for Canada all these years it was part of their their gold medal winning team last year and so the legacy of this tournament not just in those those players uh but the immediate legacy immediate impact 200 tickets sold right um economic impact for the that area the the two small venues uh that were in the Vancouver area plus the big stadium in Edmonton 20 million Record TV audience, and I love this, nearly 2 million viewers in Canada for the final and worldwide in excess of 25 million. Um, and then the later legacy is really the 2015 Women's World Cup that I think set Canada up as, you know, a natural choice um, for that tournament and, and also, you know, built the building blocks of, of that roster. And then also further tournaments, um, those the early lists were all tournaments that were in the 2002 tournament. These are players who played in later editions of this tournament um, who are household names, right? Alex Morgan, Sydney LaRue, they were part of the US team. 
that won in 2008, as well as Alyssa Nair. Sam Mewis, part of the team that won in 2012. Alexander Pop, who was so impressive at the Euro this summer. Um, she helped Germany won, win in uh, 2010. You know, so, ma so many young stars. Now it's just a natural pipeline, much like it is for the men's. And then 20 years later, so this summer we had uh, the World Cup, the U-20 World Cup in Costa Rica, Spain won, and they hired, uh, Mexico hired away their coach. He's Pedro Lopez is now the coach for Mexico women's national team. And next week we have the U-17 Women's World Cup kicking off. Um, it was 2008 that FIFA started a U-17 women's tournament, and that's when they adjusted and made the U-19 a U-20. So by 2008, you had the same age set up for the women's that you have for the men's. And I feel like we have this really nice rhythm now, too, of the women's youth tournaments are in the even years, the men's youth tournaments are in the odd years. Um, also, what tends to happen is the U-20 tournament the year before a senior women's World Cup will generally be in the same country that's hosting the World Cup. This year is a little bit of an aberration because Costa Rica would have hosted in 2020, and both the U-17 and U-20 tournaments got canceled in 2020, so Costa Rica got it for 2022. But last cycle, France, as the host of the 2019 Women's World Cup, they also hosted the 2018 U-20 Women's World Cup. And I think part of that is just, you know, venue preparation, training volunteers, that kind of stuff. So if you want to watch any of these videos, the FIFA Plus app has posted a lot of great historical videos. Um, also, my own YouTube channel, which is Woso Nostalgia, um, I've been collecting more and more videos and posting them there. So I, I found via Canada um, several games from the U19 tournament, so I am slowly posting them up there as well. All right, so I will stop the share and open to any questions, if that's what happens next. <laughs> Hi there, uh, Jen, it's Michael. Uh, thanks for that presentation. It was very interesting to say the least. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask you questions. I know you probably know names better than all of us in terms of the women's game. Would you say that that team, which had, I think you mentioned six USA eventual career players, not just a, an occasional look on the national team as the biggest contribution to the national senior national team or was there another uh group um i specifically look at um the teams around 2008 2009 because when i think of a golden generation of of u.s players and i'm not taking anything away from the 99ers trust me uh winning i'm sorry uh achieving three world cup senior finals never been equaled other than with brazil and i believe germany in the men's side so uh i'm wondering if you a it was there another team that had what you would call the beginnings of the golden generation and do you see the i'm noticing more teams are now competitive in the women's game and you see it in the at the youth levels 
do you see the United States faltering, or is that an indicator that there's a catch-up going on? Well, to the first question, um, I would say that the 2012 US U-20 team, which, which is the last one that won the whole thing, there are so many names on that roster that within just a few years were regulars on the senior national team. Crystal mm -hmm. Dunn, Julie Ertz, Sam Muist, um, Morgan Bryan, and several, and, and the rest of that team, even if they didn't, you know, become senior national team members, they like, I looked at the roster last year, I think all but two of them are career NWSL players, okay. right? Um, so I would say that the 2012 is probably the deepest team in terms mm -hmm. of that. Um, 2008, of course, was the breakout tournament for Alex Morgan and, and, and Sidney LaRue. Uh, but I would say that, you know, if you had to look at the the bulk of them, it would really be 2012. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons I always like watching the youth tournaments is because these players haven't played together forever, you know, and mm -hmm. in most cases are just kind of coming together for a few camps before the tournament. Um, the U.S. does not have the advantage that it's held so long in the senior game. Um, one of the reasons that the U.S has done so well in the past is because either they only trained together because there wasn't a women's pro league or they were in a situation where they could have more training days together than most national teams Great. did. Um, you know, and, and that's changing, you know, but what, so what I like at the youth level is when you watch U 17 or U 20, it, it can't be, Oh, it's because they've all played together forever. No, it, it's gotta be talent, coaching, mentality, a little bit of luck, um, and I think it's such a great um, training ground, literally, for their future national team careers to to know what it's like to to play such an intense match with consequences in front of a large crowd, um, you know, with not having a lot of experience. I mean, like what we were talking about earlier before we started recording about the young American players playing at Wembley today right? That's going to be an incredible experience for them. And when you look at the last several U20 and even U17 Women's World Cups, where the U.S. hasn't necessarily advanced out of the group stage, I know it's it's our mentality as Americans to go, well, what's wrong? We're doing something wrong. But I feel like as long as we're getting to those tournaments and getting good experience and, and learning moments from those tournaments, mm -hmm. we'll be fine. Because when you look at the youth tournaments on the men's side and who wins and who wins the senior world cup, there's not necessarily a correlation. I mean, case in point, Mexico, how many youth tournaments have they won? So many at every age level, right? How many world cups have they won? Not a, you know, so <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Sure. Good questions. Those are awesome. Hi, Jen. Um, that was really, really interesting. Um, I'm kind of filtering it through a sport marketing course I'm teaching right now, and I'm trying to communicate to the students and I'm failing at it woefully uh, about how, you know, you can't really market or rely on the core product of the teams on, on the pitch. And this is a really fascinating case study and, and, you know, with hindsight, oh my gosh, this is a marketer's dream. Look at all this talent that was out there. But of course, these, these, these young women were, were absolute unknowns right. emerging from obscurity with the tournament but so I'm, i don't know if you've really gone into this or not or, or, or 
tracked it down at all, but what was the marketing effort with this, which seems so wildly successful, especially in Edmonton, right? What, what was the narrative they constructed and what kind of market segments did they really tap into, right? It was, you know, those great crowds where they, were they, um, were they youth soccer clubs that were tapped into, or was this a, a real nationwide thing? And, and yeah, I remember it on Fox soccer channel too, but I don't, I can't remember how it was framed in terms of a narrative. Well, I, I had a hard time finding anything from FIFA or Canada soccer documentation around that time. Um, though I did watching some of the games again, I did hear comments about how um, they had planned a tour of the players coast to coast leading up to the tournament, right? So, so every major city in Canada saw this team play a real game against, you know, US or Mexico or somebody that summer leading up to that tournament. So at least, I mean, it's, it's grassroots in a way, right? Um, and, and props to Canada soccer for investing and, and doing that, right? Um, so you had the whole country behind you, right? This was still very early in the history of Women's World Cup at all. So you don't have a culture yet necessarily of people traveling to see this event, right? So Canada soccer clearly knew if we're going to have crowds, they're going to be home crowds, right? Like that, that clip from the final, you saw the little group of U.S. fans, right? And I'm sure that was friends and family of the players, right? There was not, you know, there was no, there was no promo here to like, hey, come up to Canada. Unlike, say, 2015, where, oh, my God, the traffic from the northern U.S. to Winnipeg was crazy or you know, the border traffic leaving Vancouver after the final to go back to the States, right? Um, so I think the, the smartest thing they did was getting that team out the whole summer so people knew who they were. I also read um, that during the window of the tournament, um, Canadian press dedicated more inches to soccer than they did to hockey or baseball. And and I wonder too, I don't know the, you know, I don't know the Canadian kind of sports schedule as well, but I wonder if they chose those dates in terms of how it would fit, you know, Canadian news cycle, Canadian school cycle, you know, that that kind of stuff. But that would be that would be a great question. I mean, it's like to, to find who was the 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 organizer. And it's like, you know, did you guys do youth festivals? Did you, I mean, I, I'm sure they did some some great ticket packages of like buy all three games, right? And I think it was really smart that they just had all the games for Canada and Edmonton and the other two venues were pretty small, but not too far away. Right. So, so one venue was suburban Vancouver and one was on Victoria Island. And I'm so glad that they convinced FIFA to have that big venue, much like in 99 when, you know, where they were proposing 99 world cup and FIFA was like, no, 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 do it in small venues on the East coast. They're like, no, we got this, you know, cause if you, if you market it, good question. Fascinating. Thanks so much. Looks like Chuck has a question here. Go ahead, Chuck. Hi, Jen. Uh, thank you so much for a great presentation. Um, a couple of questions. Firstly, how did the numbers compare to men's youth tournaments? You listed um, that. And then uh, secondly, how did, how did the People's Republic of China not qualify? <laughs> That's that's a very good question, um, and they actually addressed that in the in the FIFA technical report. That was like the first line under the the Asian Federation. Well, everyone was surprised, 
um, so let me answer that that part first. Um, Asia's qualifying uh, both they, they did a U19 tournament and both semifinalists won. And it just happened that China and Japan ended up on the same semifinal and apparently it was a really close, really close thing. Um, so, and, and to speak to qualifying in general, everyone did a qualifying tournament except Europe. So they used their existing U19 championship that had already happened and just said, okay, the top four automatically go. I hadn't looked too much at men's numbers, right? And and I and I know it would be hard to to find like the the viewership numbers. Um, I was treating it more as just we know we know from FIFA's thinking, and I think you know in general people's thinking at the time that the bar would be so low that you're like, all right, a couple thousand will be great, right? Um, but that's why that tournament captured my attention and it sticks in my memory that it fell at such a great time, right? You had the 99 World Cup. You had you had Canada play the 99 World Cup. Um, you had, that was just like following just the second women's Olympic tournament, the founding of the WSA. Keep in mind, um, so that would have been at the end of the second season of the WSA. There were a lot of Canadians in the WSA, right? Like that was already a market uh, in terms of Canada that was into soccer, um, I think it was just a sleeping giant. And they had at the time, I do know, more youth girl players than boy players. I'd love to ask a question, Jen, if I could. Sure. Um, it, it, it kind of flows with my dissertation a lot because I'm thinking a lot about um, foreign-born athletes on, on World Cup teams and World Cup rosters. And one of my case studies is U.S. women that have gone to play for Mexico. Um not necessarily speaking just to that case, but I'm wondering if you see athletes making that decision to represent one country or another, you know, since you have to choose one or the other, those with dual nationality, do we see any prominent cases of women doing that at a young age to play in the under 19 World Cup? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that brings up the the case of Sydney LaRue, who played who played for Canada in the 06 played for us in the 08 and 2010 tournaments um because you were not cap tied when you play for a youth national team same as you're not cap tied if you play a, a friendly for a senior national team for sydney i know having read about it that she just felt she was going to get a lot more opportunity uh, playing with the U.S. Um, more recently, she's talked about, you know, that there was a coach that was really inappropriate, um, but that she saw much more opportunity, you know, with that. And to the point about Mexico, I did take a look at their roster for, for the tournament in 2002, and I was really pleased to see that there were only a couple of Mexican-Americans because 1999 and the team they used for qualifying in 1998 for that Women's World Cup were very heavy on Mexican-Americans because they were just trying to just trying to make the World Cup, right? Leo Cuellar was trying to get something started. Yep. So I was really pleased to see when I looked at that 2002 roster, there were maybe like two or three Mexican-Americans. Yeah, I, I think there were only a couple. Um, so yeah, I, 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 LaRue was a case that 
now that I look back, I'm like, how come that didn't just come straight to mind? But yeah, thank you for <laughs> touching on that, because I think that is really fascinating. Um, both, like you said, the fact that you're not necessarily cap tied, and especially after the, what was it, the 2021 FIFA regulations came out about nationality. Um, I'll be curious if we see that happen more frequently in the future, you know, um, youngsters having the chance to kind of have a taste of both sides or whatnot before they make that final senior decision um so well, thanks yeah sofia huerta um she played for mexico in their u20 women's world cup in 2012 um really wanted to play for the us so when they asked her to be on their their team for CONCACAF qualifying for the 2015 women's world cup she turned it down because she knew then she would be cap tied to Mexico, right? So she had to wait two more years. She finally got her first cap with the US national team and then kind of wait a few more years to be kind of accepted as the defender. Now she she seems like a starter on a Volaco's back line. Well, thank you so much for touching on all of those areas. Yeah, David. I, I've got one more. I mean, I, I, you know, honestly, like, you know, before the talk, I'm thinking, okay, well, why this tournament? Why this tournament? And well, you know, QED, I mean, completely made the case that this is a really fascinating case study. Are there any other tournaments at, for the same age group that you would want to follow up on in, in this kind of depth? And it, it was that it was that kind of a um, critical juncture for the game, you think, that made this tournament such a such a really exceptional one? I, I really feel that the timing had so much to do with it when you look at the growth of college soccer, the establishment of the WSA, the incredible impact of the 1999 Women's World Cup tournament, right? Like, I do not think FIFA would have even considered a tournament like this if 99 hadn't been so huge, right? They, you know, we remember the phrase that that Sepp Blatter liked to toss about that, you know, the future of football is feminine, um, which, you know, no, I'm not flattered by that step. I know you're just saying that there's a lot of more unregistered, you know, women players and there are registered men's players. So let, let's get them registered. You know, they saw the possibility in that. And, and for me, it sticks in my brain because of that juncture of the WSA was launching, um, more and more women's soccer was on TV, right? Um, it really wasn't until late 98 that, it got to the point where every US women's game was automatically on TV, you know, and, and when Fox, Fox sports was still Fox sports world or Fox soccer world or whatever. Yeah. You know, that, that it's like, and you could still watch rugby on it. Right. The fact that those games were live, like I didn't even know at the time, I didn't even know what that tournament was, but I was like, Oh, this is fascinating. And, and so I think it's part of the reason it's stuck in my brain is because of that, all the, the, that confluence of things happening at the same time, but also that so many of those players are still playing or were really impactful players, right? Um, one of the players I didn't talk about much, um, Aaron McLeod, the the um, Canadian goalkeeper who sported an amazing mohawk uh, for most of the tournament. I mean, she just stood out to me. I'm like, who is that? What is that? Um, and then many years later, she was... Um, signed by my local pro team in their first year they're like oh we're signing canadian goalkeeper aaron mcleod you know and, and i got to meet her and i said okay so tell me about that mohawk and she's like oh my god i thought no one remembered that i'm like no that's that was very memorable <laughs> 
Yeah. But if I, if I wanted to do a deep dive on another team, I think it would be uh, the 2008 team. And part of that's because I read a really interesting report about that team um, several years ago, because that was Tony DeChico coaching that U.S. team, having already won a senior world cup, right? Having already won an Olympic gold medal, um, having already been commissioner of the WSA, he went back, right? Um, and there's so many great stories that came out of that tournament. Um, and he wrote a report. It was kind of like a post-mortem. Um, and it, it used to be on his, his soccer school's website. And I think U.S. soccer made him take it down at some point. Um, I'm happy to share it because I saved the PDF. Uh, it's just a point by point of everything that went right, everything that went wrong, and everything that he recommends to it in the future. And and he made it he made it really clear that a lot of their success was due to luck. You know that that he's he's like all the other teams have caught up. You know we can't assume that we're doing great because we won this tournament. But some of the other things he pointed out that um, if he hadn't have scheduled one more camp before CONCACAF qualifying, they never would have identified Alex Morgan. Also talked about that Nike provided them no uniforms other than what they wore on the field. And, and he talked about that, you know, at the team hotel, they're sitting next to Germany who are all in matching gear every day. He, he goes, and we just look like college students have just rolled out of bed. You know, he goes, he goes, Nike gave us all kinds of lifestyle gear, like purple velour t-shirts and stuff like that, but nothing the the players, they're like, we don't want to complain, but we'd really like to have something that says U.S. soccer, right? Uh, you know, they were told that they had to buy their own um, roller bags, you know, just a, a lot of little stuff like that. Um, I'm happy to share that report because he also gets into the, the technical and tactics of how other teams were better and how they overcame some of those obstacles and also how he managed some of the personalities on the team. Um, you know, Sid LaRue was very young and, you know, there were some issues with her. Um, I figured out, it took me a while, but I figured out that he talked about the player that he cut from the team, even though she was the top scorer at the CONCACAF tournament, that was Kelly O'Hara. Right. But clearly, clearly she got the message and, and turned things around. So if, if I would do a deep dive, it would be that mostly because wow. of that report and also because of a coach like Tony DeChico going back to, to do the youth. Thank you everybody for uh, attending this sash session. Um, this will be on our YouTube channel uh, for you to watch in the future as well. Um, Stay tuned for more information about future sessions, both through our newsletter and our social media channels. And all of you have a wonderful rest of your Friday.